Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this interregnum between Christmas and the New Year to look back on the major stories we covered in 2022 and how they evolved, starting today with the radical right capture of the Supreme Court by a small secretive cabal of moral authoritarians funded by plutocratic dark money. We'll start with a broadcast of background briefing from June the 15th of 2022 on how the American majority can thwart the tyranny of the minority with the Supreme Court poised to take away women's reproductive rights, gun safety rights in blue states, environmental protection to deal with global warming, and voting rights empowering voter suppression by partisan Republican legislatures. Joining us was Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He has written several books in his fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. His latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And before we begin, as the end of the year approaches, when folks make their charitable donations, I hope our listeners and donors think of background briefing and reward our determination to keep this program free of commercial advertising, corporate underwriting, and not to mention paywalls. So if you're so inclined, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to our tax-exempt nonprofit foundation, publictruthmedia.org, where your donations, large and small, will enable us to keep offering background briefing free to the public. And I wish you and yours the happiest of holidays. And joining us now is Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Samuel Moyne. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, you're quoted in an article in the Washington Post by Paul Waldman and Greg Sargent, how aggressively should liberals attack the Supreme Court? And the article begins, and let me just quickly read the first paragraph. At any moment, the Supreme Court could hand down decisions stating that women have no constitutional rights to an abortion, that states are severely restricted in how they can regulate guns amid mounting carnage, and that the Environmental Protection Agency has limited authority to regulate greenhouse gases in service of securing a habitable planet. And of course, you could add to that federal voting rights will be watered down and the state's ability to green light voter suppression with Republican legislatures will be enhanced. So this is a pretty alarming picture, isn't it, that we're facing? It's incredibly alarming, Ian. I, you know, the, the, the court has been trending right since Richard Nixon began uh, to put uh, conservative justices on to answer Earl Warren's liberal court. But we're now at a moment of crisis since Donald Trump has appointed three jurists who are having a, a very large effect on our country's law. So what do you make of this uh, group that's been set up called Take Back the Court? And they believe that 
the Republican tactics such as stealing Merrick Garland's seat and giving it to Gorsuch have increased and emphasised and exacerbated the counter-majority features of our system, both by empowering a right-wing court majority to enact its policy preferences by speciously striking down legislation and by enabling the courts to greenlight voter suppression and other anti-democratic GOP state laws. So is there something in their tactics or can you explain further what they might have in mind, how Democrats can organize to buttress the power of this entrenched supermajority on the right controlling the courts? Well, so for full disclosure, I've been on the advisory board of Take Back the Court from the beginning. I have a slightly different diagnosis that I think goes further um, and a slightly different cure. But I I agree with the group uh, that the, you know, Washington Post article covers that we're in crisis and there's a systemic problem um, with the court. I don't think it's just that um, Republicans have taken it over. Um, although it's true as, 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 you know, the, the group and many other groups, uh, insist that, you know, the president and Senate are not, um, majoritarian institutions. You know, the president is elected not by a national vote, but by the electoral college, but he gets to appoint new justices. And the Senate, even worse, is privileging small states, and yet it gets to approve uh, those justices once the president nominates them. So in a way, the Supreme Court intensifies the minority rule features of the Constitution, and those have come into play in a very big way when you've got a certain configuration uh, of voters with Democrats in, you know, blue states and Republicans in those smaller red states. Um, and the president is elected without a majority of the national vote. But the truth is that, you know, the diagnosis ought to go deeper because the institution itself, even when it's staffed by um, liberals um, that many liberal groups prefer, um, is counter-majoritarian. It decides on the content of the law, no matter what the current majority of Americans think. And I think that's wrong. I think we ought to have laws that the majority supports, especially when um, the court hasn't been acting to defend the vulnerable and weak kinds of minorities, but instead the wrong minorities, the corporate, uh, the gun-toting, and those who really want to oppress, uh, you know, especially women with the, you know, opposition to abortion. So if that's your diagnosis, then the cure is not just getting our friends back in high places, like in the old days, so that the Supreme Court could reach the right views, because the problem is that it's Congress that ought to be in charge of the law, not the courts in the first place. And so I've backed a slightly different set of remedies um, that are about transferring power back to Congress and so that the Supreme Court doesn't get to make up the law. 
And again, I'm speaking with Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He has written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Well, isn't the Supreme Court about to take away much of the prerogatives of the Congress in terms of regulating. They've already gone after OSHA and the CDC, and they're going to be going after the EPA. The expectation is that they're going to strike down the EPA's ability, the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate the clean water and clean air, which will make it impossible to deal with global warming. In other words, government expertise itself, anything that has the word public in it, is being taken away from the expertise that government departments have and handed over to this unelected branch. Absolutely right. You know, um, the the really frightening um, set of cases, which are not much talked about, uh, involve an, an invented doctrine uh, that the court first, you know, flirted with in, in the time it was opposing the New Deal but has revived in a big way in the past 10 years. Um, it's called the non-delegation doctrine. And basically it, it, it says that the administrative state as a whole is unconstitutional uh, on the grounds that it, it, the legislature shouldn't be allowed to transfer its own power to the alphabet soup of experts uh, in, in the federal agencies. Now, what's devious about that uh, is that the doctrine is really supposedly about it restoring power to Congress, um, you know, its legislative authority. But the reality is it's, it's actually about judges condemning the state that we've built in the 20th century, which was a state that in which experts who know things that legislatures don't can make the call about um, things that they you know do know better than the average citizen about while leaving room for the Congress to give it directions. Um, so this is a very scary development because you know what we know as the American government could be cut to shreds by the Supreme Court in the coming year or two. And I think that would have much bigger ramifications, honestly, than any of its toxic decisions people are worried about in this current term. And an example of that is, of course, this unqualified federal judge appointed by Trump down in Florida who who struck down the mask mandate at the same time these right-wing courts want the CDC's restrictions on immigrants coming in and claiming asylum based upon COVID restrictions. So Correct, correct. Very, so, so what we're seeing... It, go ahead. No, sorry, sorry, Ian. Well, so what we're seeing, I think what we should see in all of this is that, you know, we were taught in civics class that judges uh, uh, are are not ideologues one way or the other, and they they interpret the law rather than insert their own politics. And this is turning out to be unbelievable. 
Uh, and, you know, where I differ from a lot of, you know, people on, on among liberals and progressives is that it's not like liberal and progressive judges are apolitical. It's that we just like their politics if, you know, we condemn the reactionaries that, you know, populate the courts now. And so I think the lesson to draw is that law is political and we need to kind of see it as, you know, part of the terrain of struggle and not let judges, you know, hiding behind the law um, make policy. And that's what the, you know, the, the Trumpified judiciary these days is so nakedly doing. Um, And the real debate is not whether that's happening, but what's, what's the best way to rethink the law in this country? And in particular, the power that judges wield to rewrite it. So would the first step then, Samuel Moyne, be to get rid of this notion, this absurdity that these are, these conservative judges, particularly the supermajority on the Supreme Court, are anything but uh, political activists in robes. I think all judges are. You know, they they're not free from uh, idea ideology, and so we shouldn't be surprised that that's true of right wing judges. And you know, the question is is not whether the wrong people are up on the bench, but how much power should judges in general enjoy? Um, in particular, should they have the power to overturn the administrative state, to invalidate you know, laws that have a congressional majority? Uh, should they you know, um, ha- have the ability to second guess uh, the, the Congress when there are already so many veto points in passing laws in the first place, given the minoritarian presidency and Senate and so forth. And I think the answer to all those questions is no, but absolutely. I think the cat's out of the bag and we can see in these right wing judges that uh, the law is not blind. It is what the judges, you know, are appointed there to say it is. So in the last few minutes, and Samuel Moyne, let's talk about what the majority in this country can do to turn back the tyranny of the minority. There's been suggestions, of course, of expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court and also having term limits for justices. How do you come down? Well, term limits is is the most obvious um, and um, remedy just because so it's it's been talked about for a while. The United States is so out of step in giving its judges life tenure compared to other countries. And people on the left and right can kind of agree about term limits. But, you know, part of the reason is that term limits don't really affect the basic problem, um, which is that it's not judges, but the judiciary that wields, you know, too much power, unaccountable power. So um, there, there are proposals, which I don't necessarily um, reject to kind of undo Mitch McConnell's damage by, um, you know, counterpacking. If we say that, you know, his choices during the Trump years were actually the first time that um, the court was packed lately, then maybe the remedy is to pack it again. 
Um, now, there's a little worry there I have that if the Democrats do so, they're just inviting, you know, a, a you know, cycle of vengeance where when, you know, the Republicans have power next time, they'll raise the number of justices and so forth. That's why, in general, I favor a different set of remedies that I call disempowering remedies. And the basic idea is make the court weaker. Um, and, you know, one example of this is jurisdiction stripping, uh, which is basically Congress saying that the Supreme Court can't invalidate um, the laws that it passes. For example, if the Congress decided to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, it came within one vote in the Senate of doing so um, the other day to provide abortion rights in federal statute. Well, you could add a writer to that law saying that the Supreme Court couldn't uh, junk the law. Um, there's another kind of parallel solution called the supermajority rule. Right now, it, it requires a bare majority of justices, five of nine, to invalidate or rewrite federal law. And, you know, you could say, well, it ought to require seven. Um, since, again, you're you're, you, what they're saying in those cases is that the Constitution forbids Congress from acting. Well, it ought to be absolutely clear that that's the case. So maybe we ought to require all nine to agree or eight or seven, not just five. And then there's the possibility, third, of legislative override. It's not clear from the Constitution that the Supreme Court should have the last word about what's constitutional. And, you know, it could be we let the Supreme Court you know, take its turn and give its view on that uh, matter, but that in the end, co the Congress might want to keep the law that the Supreme Court tried to junk. Well, I don't know that there's any political likelihood of uh, the Democrats getting the opportunity to stack the court. Certainly, as we get towards November, when the, ho the House is likely to go into Republican hands and of all people, Jim Jordan will be the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Then if the Republicans take the Senate, if there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court, wouldn't the majority leader McConnell then do exactly what he did with Merrick Garland and basically steal another seat from uh, the Democrats? You know, ass assuming that a Democrat, you know, dies or retires, you know, uh, in when McConnell's in charge. So absolutely, if the Republicans keep winning in a narrowly divided country, they will continue to control the court and, you know, reform is not possible. Although, in fairness, my um, arguments are ones that conservatives made for years in response to a liberal court. Um, but I don't think we should, you know, um, like, you know, conclude that these reforms are unimaginable. Um, you know, the Women's Health Protection Act was one vote away from passage and the Democrats could run either now or in the future saying, look, if you give us majority control of the Congress, we will um, codify Roe or even get better abortion rights than the Supreme Court ever did. Uh, and they would need to blow up the filibuster to pass a majority law in the Senate that protected abortion rights, but then there would be genuine reform because you would have a contest with the court 
over who gets to decide, you know, what what the law is and what in particular American rights ought to look like. Well, Samuel Moyne, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Samuel Moyne, who's a Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's written several books in his field of European intellectual history, human rights history, and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And that was a broadcast of Background Briefing from June the 5th of 2022. We'll take a brief station break. We'll be back with another background briefing from August the 22nd of 2022. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we are now going to a broadcast from August the 22nd of 2022 about how the billionaires behind dark money can't openly sell their terrible ideas to a public that doesn't want them. We examine further how, to quote Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Let's be clear, the creepy billionaire interests behind the massive dark money machine would rather hold power in the smoking ruins of American democracy than live in a healthy democracy where they can't sell their terrible ideas to a public that doesn't want them. Joining us was Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America. And joining us now is Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nancy McLean. It's nice to be back with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America just got a huge boost, a $1.6 billion donation by an industrialist from Chicago who donated 100% of his shares in his company, Trip Light, to Leonard Leo of the Federalist, formerly of the Federalist Society, who's responsible for getting Amy Coney Barrett Brett Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, John Roberts, and Alito and Scalia on the Supreme Court. He basically, what happened, what we're learning about from the New York Times today in a story, an unusual $1.6 billion donation bolsters conservatives. A low-profile Republican financier donated his company to a new group run by the influential operative Leonard Leo. So what happened was that this fellow said donated 100% of his shares in Triplite to Leonard Leo's uh, non-profit before the company was sold to an Irish conglomerate for $1.65 billion. And the non-profit of Leo's is called the Marble Freedom Trust. And this deal was structured in a way to mean that Said didn't pay taxes. 
and he saved himself four hundred million, and nor that neither did Leonard Leo pay taxes. So, a pretty sweet deal, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, and it's a real slap in the face to ordinary taxpayers because basically this deal has ordinary folks like us and, and your listeners subsidizing these efforts by billionaires to transform our institutions. You know, Leonard Leo was so successful at doing that, as, as you described, uh, at the Federalist Society and with the Judicial Crisis Network um, and delivering the Dobbs decision uh, and the anti-environmental decision in, in the West Virginia case that now he's being promoted with a huge slush fund. Um, but because they didn't pay tax we're paying for it. So it's it's not only, you know, a grotesque revelation, a new example of dark money, you know, in larger quantities than we've ever seen before in a single funding effort, but it also is doing so at great cost to the taxpayers who are being asked to subsidize this billionaire effort to transform our institutions to the billionaire's liking because they're because of the way they arranged it through a corporate purchase on which they didn't pay taxes. So how does this, to your mind, since you wrote in many ways, the sort of definitive book on how the plutocracy has bought the democracy, or at least hollowed out the democracy in this country, which I think is the largest issue we all face, and not to mention the fact that the yeah. next election in November may be the last democratic election in America. I mean, for the life of me, Nancy, I don't understand why the Democrats can't make that case to the American people, is that you've got to vote in November, because if you don't, the Republicans have already figured out how to rig the next elections forever and turn us into a one-party state like Orban's Hungary. Yeah. That's, that's what's happening I mean, I do, see, I do see that case being made by a lot of people, you know, Democrats and others in the activist world. And I think, you know, at least some people in the news media are, are starting to to get wise to this. But I think the longstanding habits in the mainstream media of both sidesism, of impartiality, etc., leave them paralyzed when they're faced with a party that has jumped the rails, that no longer believes in democracy or the Constitution, and that is behaving in a thoroughly authoritarian manner. I mean, the most elementary definition of a functional democracy is one in which the losers of an election acknowledge their loss, right? And what we have now is this phenomenon of, you know, so many Republican candidates for office, I believe it's 70 or 80 percent of the people who are coming through uh, the, the latest primaries are, you know, what's called election deniers. But we should actually be calling them, as Jennifer Rubin said today in The New York Times, election liars. You know, these are people who are promoting Donald Trump's big lie and they're running for offices, as you were suggesting, I think, like secretary of state, where they would be able to determine how the election is run and essentially hand it over to their chosen candidate, whether it's Donald Trump or uh, DeSantis or, you know, whatever MAGA Republican uh, runs in 2024. So I think, yeah, I mean, we have got to learn from the failure of ordinary Democrats to mobilize for the 2010 midterms after Obama was elected in 2008. That's when we lost so many state houses, um, and then those state houses put into effect 
the voter suppression, the extreme gerrymandering, the destruction of public sector labor unions, and all the rest that have artificially uh, uh, empowered a minority party to push through this kind of billionaire and Christian radical right agenda. So we have got to see you know, people acting like this is this is the most important election in our lives. And sadly, we keep having to say that. But that's because, the you know, the right keeps going further right. And I, I will say this. I mean, I talked to, you know, a lot of folks who are, are quite expert in uh, in elections and, you know, in the data of recent elections. And, you know, what one of them has has pointed out in particular is that, you know, these are not normal election times. Right. So all of this and gloom chatter that we hear from the pundit class about how, you know, the Democrats are going to be shellacked and there's no hope and, you know, on and on and on. All that election modeling is based on normal times, but we're not in normal times, right? And ordinary voters for the Democrats and activists understood that. And in 2018 and 2020, we saw record-shattering turnout, first for a midterm and then for a presidential election. So uh, with so many election deniers uh, running for office and having the support of the Republican Party, it's critical that uh, Democrats and anybody who cares about democracy um, mobilize to make sure those people are not elected. Um, and we've got to make sure that the state legislatures are, you know, many of them won't be taken back in a single cycle, but the the extent of the gerrymandered supermajorities can be cut and uh, Democratic uh, governors, as in my state of North Carolina, have been very successful at vetoing some of the worst of what um, these MAGA Republicans Republicans uh, have tried to do. So it's really important not only to do turnout um, and to go, you know, door to door um, and talk to fellow voters about the situation and about the need to to get out, but also to make sure that people vote the whole ballot um, so that we can change these state legislatures and preserve non-billionaire dominated state judiciaries. And again, I'm speaking with Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University, an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy and Change, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan. But what Leonard Leo represents for the plutocracy is a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. And mm -hmm. he's obviously with his Opus Dei ties. He's also in sync with the Christian nationalists uh, who are a big part of the New Republican coalition in blind uh, lockstep support for Donald Trump. But one of the things that Leonard Leo did through the Judicial Crisis Network, the dark money vehicle that they set up, he got donations, some of them uh, to get rid of Merrick Garland, uh, were completely uh, anonymous, of course, thanks mm -hmm. to Citizens United. But he also got a lot of money from the Koch brothers and other plutocrats. So what's the interest amongst the plutocrats to have America sort of turn into, you know, the Handmaid's Tale with Amy, yeah. Coney, Amy Coney Barrett and these others? What's the agenda there, do you think? 
Yeah, well, one of the things that I found in my research for Democracy in Chains that was so striking uh, was to find Charles Koch and chief strategist of his recognizing that their, you know, radical right libertarian agenda is so unpopular and will never be popular. So it can't win in an honest way in elections because voters don't want what they are you know, the kind of world they're trying to bring into being. And as a result of that, um, they have relied on strategic disinformation on multiple fronts, and they have relied on rigging the rules of democracy so that this minority uh, party representing even tinier minority interests can stay in power. But to get the, you know, those Republican votes that they have um, committed to getting to move their strategy through the political system, they have to get a reliable uh, base of voters. And they have found that in those religious right voters, particularly white evangelical Christian uh, conservatives, but also, uh, you know, as Leonard Leo's own biography suggests, conservative Catholics. And so that is how they do it. And they square the circle uh, on this theocracy that these folks are bringing in by speaking of freedom. They speak of religious freedom. They even have a transnational actually organization called the Alliance Defending Freedom. And the freedom that they're talking about is the freedom of Christians to dominate everyone else in uh, in these societies uh, in which they work. And so by freedom, they mean the freedom to discriminate against lesbians and gays and you know other LGBTQ people. They mean uh, the freedom for religious employers to refuse uh, abortion coverage to women, um, you know, and those kinds of freedom. So really freedom to dominate, not freedom from domination, which is the way most of the rest of us understand it. Well, just in closing, just in this 1.6 billion that Leonard Leo now has to spend on the 2020 elections, just before this happened, his new group or his new dark fund vehicle, the Marble Trust, they already donated 229 million to other nonprofits to expand the network, and uh, they spent a total of 122 million on issues to animate their conservative base. I'm reading from the New York Times article to confirm conservative federal judges to restrict abortion, etc. And uh, one group, the Rule of Law Trust, was involved in the judicial nomination fight. They received 153 million from Leonard Leo last year, and another, the Concord Fund, uh, received 16.5 million. So these, uh, this is how, how they're doing it, right? They're literally buying the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, these are head spinning numbers um, and they are spending them on many fronts. I would, though, really, really reinforce the point with listeners, because it is easy to feel daunted by all of this, that that this is in a way a mark of desperation. I mean, it's people who think they are close to kind of clinching their control. But again, they have to do it in this way because they don't represent the majority and they know the majority is against them, whether it's on abortion rights or environmental protection or preserving social security and Medicare or, you know, funding our public schools or all of these things. So they do it in this way because that's the kind of people they are and they are representing these, these arch-right uh, billionaire donors and, you know, religious reactionaries. Um, but I think also just to give people uh, like the smell test on some of this, I mean, it isn't just that they managed to transfer all of this money 
money with no tax obligation for uh, the donor who sold his company or for Leonard Leo receiving this this huge gift of one point six million dollars. Um, there's a track record. Can you here. do that again? It's one point six billion. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, you know, with this one point six billion dollars, there is a, a prior track record here with Leonard Leo um, of getting dark money. So it's untraceable, but constructing deals that cannot be tracked in public. So at the time of the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, my dear friend and colleague Lisa Graves at True North uh, Research discovered uh, Leonard Leo got a windfall that enabled him to pay off his uh, mortgage 22 years early, <laughs> a 2012 mortgage 22 years early for, for that work, uh, and then to purchase, I believe it was a 12-bedroom mansion in Maine um, in another, you know, effectively what looked like a payoff. So, you know, I do hope the IRS gets the new monies that people are talking about, because clearly we need more eyes on all of these deals. And actually, you know, as someone who has studied this um, and the way this, this radical corporate right works, I think the place they're most vulnerable uh, for charges of breaking the law and criminality are in this domain of uh, tax violations, um, you know, of misusing charity laws and such. So I do hope that this latest um, uh, really journalistic coup by the New York Times reporters uh, who discovered this, I hope this will inspire others to dig into the really disgusting, phony use of um, a, a charitable uh, tax status in order to fund these organizations that are literally enchaining democracy. And it's just, it's so disgusting. They're having us pay for it, you know, for every tax dollar they, uh, these billionaires don't pay because they can claim nonprofit status. They have the rest of us subsidizing what they are doing to us. And I think if more people understood that there would be more action and more rallying to do something about it. Well, Nancy McLean, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. Thank you again. I'll be speaking with Nancy McLean, a distinguished professor of history and public policy at Duke University and an award-winning scholar of the 20th century United States. Her books include Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and most recently, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. And that was Background Briefing from August the 22nd of 2022. And we'll take a brief station break and be back with a broadcast of Background Briefing from October the 16th of 2022. Here come the judge. Don't nobody Cause here come the judge. Judge Shorty is presiding. Take no stuff from nobody, no kind of way. Hey, boy, take off that hat. Where do you think you're at? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're now going to a broadcast from October the 16th of 2022 about how, having bought the Supreme Court, American oligarchs are now trying to buy the legislative branch with the massive influx of dark money into the Republican Senate races, which, in spite of what Mitch McConnell referred to as a problem with the quality of their candidates, could overcome the outrageous deficiencies of Herschel Walker, Ron Johnson, J.D. Vance, and Mehmet Oz with Leonard Leo's avalanche of money. 
Joining us was Jared Yates Sexton, the author of The Man They Wanted Me To Be and The People Are Going To Rise Like The Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. He also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com at long last, let's call this what it is. We look into how the American oligarchy, having already bought the Supreme Court, is trying to buy the legislative branch and could succeed if Democrats do not show up at the polls in record numbers on or before November the 8th. And joining us now is Jared Yates Sexton, who is the author of The Man They Wanted Me To Be and The People Are Going To Rise Like The Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. And he also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. At long last, let's call this what it is. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Yates Sexton. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're in Georgia, so did you watch the uh, one and only debate between Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, and Herschel Walker? Unfortunately, I I have to tell you, I I think Herschel Walker is um, not not just an embarrassment of a candidate, but also a a slow-moving tragedy. I, I, I think... To see that a candidate, um, an unwell candidate, um, a uh, publicly exposed candidate, to see that he continues to maintain support among the Republican Party, I think it says less about him and more about the state of the GOP and the fact that all of the principles that uh, they have supposedly held for the past few decades have been nothing but, you know, cudgels for power. And on top of that, that they literally care about nothing but power. It's um, it's really disturbing. And to understand that Herschel Walker still might be the next senator from the state of Georgia, I, it's, um, it's, it's a real tragedy all the way around. Well, he'll be joining Tommy Turberville and Ron Johnson if he's re- re-elected. So the U.S. Senate, uh, which was always considered the most elite club in the world of, you know, somewhat learned gentlemen and a few gentle ladies, it's going to become an idiocracy. It's it's really terrible. And and I think one of the things, um, this is something I've been trying to wrap my head around over the past few weeks, particularly as Herschel Walker's uh, problems have come over and over and over again to the forefront. You know, this really shows a modern understanding that it really doesn't matter who the individual is that comes to represent you. And it really doesn't matter any of these principles that the Republican Party, again, throws around and claims that they care about. It's it's again, it's a total pursuit of power. And it's a cynical type of idea that that starts to expose the fact that faith in representative government, particularly at this moment, is is dwindling. And when that starts to happen, um, there are unfortunately a lot of consequences and side effects. And in this Herschel Walker case in particular, um, and, and, you know, it, it's the same thing in Pennsylvania with Mehmet Oz. We have we have a whole slew of candidates who are completely unprepared for this office, but they're being propelled forward by a political party that is absolutely obsessed with nothing more than maintaining power and forwarding their power. 
Well, the former spokesperson for the NRA, that dreadful woman, said that she doesn't care if Herschel Walker aborted endangered baby eagles. She wants to hold on to the power of the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, of course, has, as far as I can tell, the $1.6 billion that Leonard Leo has already stacked the federal bench and the Supreme Court with his hand-picked candidates. That money is being deployed in massive amounts and the Democrats are being outspent in all of these key Senate races where they have a chance of a pickup. And already 538 is suggesting that Catherine Cortez Mesto in, in Nevada may lose and that the Republicans could pick up that seat. So this is the where the battle is being fought. And it's a battle where enormous amounts of dark money are being deployed. We don't know whether this $1.6 billion is being spent because that's the nature of dark money. But we And we didn't even know about the $1.6 billion that Leonard Leo got for this election to help the Republicans, but for investigative journalism. Yes, and, and this is the main issue of the moment. Um, it, it all sort of springs from this. All of the side effects, everything from Leo's uh, capture of the judiciary to the rollback of Roe v. Wade to the, the rise of authoritarianism, what we're watching here is a, a moment in which accumulated wealth in just a few hands, because what has happened over the past few decades is that so much money and so many resources have been redistributed from the bottom up to the point where we have this new millionaire billionaire class that is absolutely obsessed with destroying democracy, with rolling back these avenues by which representative government are supposed to work. You know, you you look at this, um, you, you look at the race right now, you have two candidates in particular, Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, who are running for the Senate and more or less bankrolled entirely by one tech mogul uh, in, in Peter Thiel. And what has happened since um, the, the push for Citizens United and the flood of dark money is you're now looking at basically a party in the Republican Party that has become a public relations front for a very, very small group of billionaires who are, again, obsessed with uh, rolling back any and all progress of the 20th century, whether it's uh, regulations, whether it's affirmative action, a woman's right to choose. We're talking about minimum wage. We're talking about social safety net issues like Social Security, Medicare. This process, what we're, what, what we're watching taking place right now, it's the consequence of that redistribution of wealth over the past few decades. And, and it was inevitable that we were going to get here the moment that that dark money was allowed to flow the way that it does. Well, already the dark money has bought the Supreme Court. So yep. the plutocrats found a weak spot, if you will, because they can buy the Supreme Court and undo laws and reshape the laws in a way that they could never sell politically because these are so outrageously stacked for the interests of the plutocrats, not the people. But if they take over the legislative branch in this election through the $1.6 billion that Leonard Leo is deploying, then they'll have they'll control both the judicial and the legislative branch. Yes, and and the frightening thing about all of this is that the way America was constructed and and actually constituted was it was about protecting a a minority. And we're always told, of course, that that's about making sure that there's not a tyranny of the majority coming after people. But the minority that it was meant to protect were wealthy white men from the very beginning. And now we've reached this point, going back to the capturing of the judiciary, 
you have it in the judiciary, you have it in the Senate, you have it, of course, with the presidency, where the Republican Party has only won one popular vote in the last 20 years. And what you're seeing is that these minoritarian institutions are being used by a minoritarian party and a minoritarian movement. And so as a result, they are very susceptible to these actions. There's a reason why the Supreme Court went down uh, uh, first is because it was meant to uh, protect that very, very uh, small minority. And so we're seeing that money and that influence and that power is starting to not only corrupt the system and and knocking out any impediment towards like empowering itself and growing richer and more powerful, but we're actually seeing the takeover of the entire system from that entry point. And that dark money that we're we're witnessing, it's it's only going to get worse because over time it it's going to become more and more obvious that this is the means by which the wealthiest few can go ahead and make sure that everything sort of follows uh, according to their own whims. So the ultimate capture then would be not just the judiciary which has already been captured and the legislative branch, which the plutocrats might well capture in November. But then, of course, in 2024, you have the possibility of Trump returning. A recent Washington Post-ABC News poll found that 47% of Republicans want Trump to be their nominee in 2024, and if he will be running against Biden, the same poll has Trump beating Biden 48 to 46%. Yeah. And so the question there is, and and one of the things that we're starting to see with Donald Trump is it's very obvious how much the Republican Party and how much the system at large really does not want him around anymore. I think Donald Trump was um, very effective in exposing the weaknesses of our institutions and their vulnerability to corruption uh, writ large, sort of exposing the lack of consequences for doing any of these strongman authoritarian attempts. So we're looking at 2024 now with the idea that this dark money and this wealth and this power might so corrupt the system that they might be able to take over all of the different levels of government. Plus also, and this is the frightening part, gerrymander out the possibility of any future, uh, you know, majority democratic sort of opposition. So you go ahead, you fix the elections, you make sure uh, that you push things like the independent legislature theory, which says that, you know, states can run their own elections, the federal government and their courts can't do anything about it. And then the really frightening thing here is whether it's Donald Trump somehow or another reascending to power and then sort of having no checks on on his power whatsoever, or the prospect of there being a really, really talented and intelligent embodiment of this. Somebody like a Ron DeSantis who can come in and, and use these levers while also being disciplined and enjoying legitimizing support uh, among the media, among politicians, because he isn't Donald Trump. So in all of this, you know, the idea that the Republican Party is somehow or another going to correct itself or wake up out of its, you know, nightmare or or break its fever, I don't see that happening. I think this is a political project that has to be defeated and defeated soundly and, quite frankly, has to go away. Well, Apparently, Trump is quite worried about the fact that he stole all that government property, which is largely top-secret documents. The FBI still don't know whether they've got back all the documents. They suspect they haven't. I think that the DOJ will indict him after the elections, but the January 6th committee's hearing on Thursday night mentioned that 
on December the 11th when Trump literally went nuts when the Supreme Court rejected his executive privilege claim over the White House documents. The only member of the court voting in his favour, of course, was Clarence Thomas. The entire court looks as if they rejected his latest plea to stop this DOJ inquiry into the theft of these documents. So my understanding is that Trump is going equally ballistic because he's a wannabe mob boss, and he looked upon the Supreme Court, okay, put you guys on there, just like a a mob boss would look upon his mafia lawyers, get the job done, you know? (laughs) I mean, this is what we have descended to. The thing that I don't understand, Jared, is how we got this far. How come this guy wasn't stopped back in 2016? How come the press never really, they gave him $5 billion worth of free advertising. Why didn't they really investigate this serial criminal in his business world, his ties to Russia, ties to Putin? I mean, the whole thing is an absolute disgrace. And now the writing is on the wall. They made it clear that he's a career criminal and a traitor. And and I think all of this is, is very, very essential to start unpacking because it, it seems completely inexplicable, right? Um, you know, in, in case of all of those billions of dollars that the American media gave in terms of free advertising, um, it was quite simply in their interest. It drove, you know, record ratings. It drove record clicks and traffic online. Like Donald Trump, and, and he's completely right when he says that the media is addicted to him and depends on him. That's because our media is completely wired and 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 set up to bring in a Donald Trump and sort of juice him for everything that they possibly can. So you get all this free advertising. And what ended up happening in 2016 was I think a lot of people thought that the system itself was simply going to spit him out like so many so much bad food. And the idea was that, you know, there's no way that somebody who is so obviously corrupt and so obviously buffoonish could possibly ever rise to the level of the presidency. And I think in a lot of this, it was a hubris. It was an idea that America was too strong and it was too uh, the the systems were too fortified and that, you know, that it was of some higher purpose or there was some sort of an American exceptionalism that would protect it. And in all of this, and this goes for the media, but it also goes for our political class, you have a lot of very wealthy, very powerful, very privileged people who are incapable of understanding what's happening or unwilling to understand what's happening because it would take a fundamental self-reflection. They would have to think about what it is that got them to their positions, what it is that made them wealthy, what gave them the affluence that they have. And Donald Trump worked as a dark reflection of that. And to really investigate who he is and what he is and how he came to power would be a self-reflection that would threaten to destroy some of these people's self-identity. And so now you've reached this point where even, you know, as we're having this conversation, people are still in, in the media saying, oh, it's not that bad. People are being reactionary. They're pulling their hair. They're being hysterical. And it's because they cannot even begin wrestling with the actual implications of, of what is occurring right now. Well, we talked about the dark money and the Citizens United decision. I mean, it has turned our, our lawmakers into telemarketers. They spend their days dialing for dollars. The Republicans have a natural fit with moneyed interests and the plutocracy, and the Democrats have to appeal to the same plutocrats for money. That's our system. It's entirely based on money. So to my mind, the real issue, as we've said before, that's where it lies. 
It absolutely does. And to get into the history of how this happened, you know, there's this thing that takes place in the 1980s, particularly as Reagan is ascending to power. And the Democrats say, you know what? Look at all these landslides. We can't defeat Reaganism. We can't even possibly compete with it. The only thing we can do is offer a different version of it. So the Democratic Party moves away from its original base. And and those who follow history know this. It's labor unions. It's poor people. It's people of color. it's, It's oppressed populations. And now we've reached this point where the consensus reality is both of the parties are asking different groups of the same people for money. And in, in, in these cases, it's, you know, wealthy billionaires and millionaires, it's corporations, it's special interest. And so what ends up happening is they end up in their own sort of back and forth, but nobody's actually addressing the material conditions that are causing this problem. And why? because they are all asking for money from the people who have created the material conditions that have led us down this road. And so as a result, you have two parties, one of which the Republican Party is descending into just right wing authoritarian fascist nationalism and a Democratic Party that has went from calling for a fairer, more human country to now basically being the defenders of the institutions. There's no sort of an idea of how things might be possibly changed except for what the right is pushing, which is, you know, this authoritarian um, just overreach that, you know, is is really, really disturbing and, and, and frightening. But there's no sort of an alternative in terms of what we could do to make it better. Right. And just in closing, rich people have always given money to politicians on the understanding that they're obedient, not necessarily smart, not necessarily good for the country. I mean, that's their their bottom line, isn't it? Exactly. And to go ahead and, and give the devil his due, you know, what, one of the things about Donald Trump is he is absolutely full of it and lies constantly, but he's very truthful occasionally and he has points occasionally. And when he was out on the debate stage and he says, I give money to everybody and then they do what I want and they return my calls, he was absolutely correct. This is a corrupted system, and corrupted systems such as ours lead to these conditions. The only way we're going to get out of this is if we address the corruption widespread and we find a different way. Well, Jared Yates Nixon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, great as always. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Yates Nixon, who's the author of The Man They Wanted Me To Be and The People Are Going To Rise Like The Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. And he also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. At long last, let's call this what it is. And you've been listening to a retrospective of Background Briefing's 2022 programs on the ca- programs on the capture of our judiciary by the far right. And tomorrow we look back at our coverage of energy and the environment. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.